Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Three, two, one. You're listening to Field Day with Katie Black. Is that is that is that good? What's up, everybody? Welcome to Field Day with Katie. Today, I'm honored I have with me. Rob Adler, I'm the current host of the podcast I played too, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever podcast hops you might have. What's up, Rob? So background, I got connected to Rob through a mutual friend, Ed. So shout out, Ed, if you ever see or hear this. But I feel like I've known you for a long time. Is it likewise or not really? Oh, sure. I kind of... I'm a little bit outgoing in my professional life. I'm a little bit more subdued in my personal life, but outgoing, it's the never meet a stranger. No, oh, I love that. I love that. When also to our connection too, like obviously you know a lot of fun facts and I love people that love fun facts. I feel like we would be good at trivia. Uh, I'm good at some trivia, but if it's movie trivia, you don't want me anywhere near it. That's fair. Well, first of all, I always ask my guests, where were you born slash where did you grow up? So I was actually born in Ottawa, Canada, but I grew up mostly in Dallas, Texas. And so what I've never what's Dallas like? What's what was growing up there like? So Dallas is very different now compared to what I grew up with. Mm-hmm. Dallas has grown probably 200% in terms of population. And it, I can actually find good pizza here. That was not true in the 1980s. It's a different kind of place in the 80s. Everybody thought of the show Dallas with J.R. Ewing, et cetera. And now Dallas is more of a metropolis and things like that where you can go like from one end of the city of like Mesquite to Fort Worth, which is the other side of the Metroplex, and it's like 75 miles. Very interesting. And when I first found out this about Rob when we were on the phone, the first thing I asked was about JFK and Dealey Plaza. Is that like, do you get that a lot or not really? I do. Actually, when I first started ESPN, I had four people come up and tell me that they're huge JFK conspirators and they don't believe what happened. And they asked me, like, do you ever go to Dealey Plaza? And I actually would pause and I'd have to think, oh, yeah, that's where Kennedy was shot. Because nobody goes there unless you're actually trying to go there, because there's not really a direct way to get there from anywhere outside of downtown. So unless you're actually going to show people there, you never really would go by it unless you were working in that area, which not a lot of people do for many years. That's more common now, but still not as common. i say if it were a site like in an eastern metropolis like D.C. or New York, where every a lot more people work downtown and stuff. Here, a lot of people work in the suburbs and never actually have a need to go downtown. Yeah, I understand. Well, real quick before we get into like your background and your career and what's going on now with you, um, do you have a theory of who killed JFK? Uh, I don't, but I was once an extra in a shoot for a a pilot that never made air that I actually was in the building across the street where uh, Oswald got shot by Jack Ruby. I was on like the seventh floor. So I got to look out at Dealey Plaza from an angle I had never seen. It was kind of cool. Was it like a weird vibe or I'm all about vibes? It was a little bit because I was kind of almost like it was you're looking down from a roof. Yeah. 
And but you're looking long ways instead of across the street, you're looking down the street. So there's a sixth floor museum here, which is where which used to be the book depository building that people can go and look. And so you look out the window, you're looking across the street to where it was. I'm looking down the street. So I had never seen it. And it was kind of cool to see it. I took a couple pictures that I wasn't supposed to take. But yeah, I'm there. I'm going to take them. I love that. Okay, well, obviously obsessed with your background. It sounds like you studied sports, you studied broadcasting, all of that realm, that umbrella. And so I was wondering, were you obsessed with it as a kid? Or how did you get into that line of that world. Yeah, I was I, I was a big fan of sports as a kid. Like I was the the kid who looked at every box score, knew most of the stats. I loved reading about sport history from the time I can remember. You know, as a kid, I could tell people about who played in the 50s and 60s, and most nine, 10 year olds can't do that. <laughs> but I always was involved with it. I loved it. You know, I grew up you know, in Dallas, I was a you know a football fan, a basketball fan. The Rangers were always terrible, but it was still fun to root for the lovable losers. Mm-hmm. So those were, you know, my teams growing up. I'm also a huge Toronto Maple Leafs fan as well. But it was just something I always enjoyed. And I was like, you know, how do I do this? One year for uh, Halloween, I went out as Harry Carey, the famed broadcaster for the Cubs. And I look nothing like nor sound like Harry. But it was just something I had always enjoyed and always watched. Like I didn't watch a whole lot of TV for most for the most part. It was sports, sports, sports. Right, right. Well, if you guys are watching this on YouTube, you're wearing an ESPN classic hat. And so essentially, how did your, you know, degree segue into working at ESPN? So my degree actually did nothing to get me there. I actually interned for somebody in Dallas who actually worked at ESPN in the early 90s. And it's one of those, he's like, hey, contact this person, can't promise anything, but at least you can try to get an interview, which is what happened. I had the interview, you know, I walked in and they and the guy was like, you know, who are your favorite teams? I'm like a big Dallas Cowboys fan. He's like, great, what are the strengths and weaknesses of the Cincinnati Bengals? And that was kind of how the interview went. And so I learned that lesson. And so he asked me my favorite hockey team. And I said, the Dallas Stars, even though that wasn't true. He says, what are the strengths and weaknesses of their Toronto Maple Leafs? I proceed to lay out everything about the Leafs. And he looks at me. He says, are you a Leafs fan? I, I said, I am. I said, I learned my lesson. He's like, he's like, I like that, but don't do that again. So I kind of, because he kind of caught me in it, but I I didn't really mind. And I had the interview. I didn't hear anything for like a month. And then all of a sudden I get a call and they're like, hey, can you start Monday? I'm like, I live in Dallas. I said, I can't get up there that quickly. I said, how about in a couple of weeks? And they said, that was fine. And that's when I went up and started and worked at Sports Center for a while. I cut highlights. I worked on ESPN News, like did all kinds of stuff there. And then when he went, Classic Sports Network, which was a network in New York, was bought by ESPN. It was moved to Bristol. And there were a whole bunch of interviews that happened with people who wanted to work there. I did one of the interviews. And so that's how I ended up at Classic, because they brought me in for that in late 1999. Wow. Well, a a long answer to a short question. Sorry. No, I love it. I love it. I'm just trying to marinate. So, you get to ESPN and what is the vibe? 
So it's kind of weird. I'm a really short guy. So I'm like five foot three and I didn't have this crazy weird beard and mustache then. So people looked at me and thought I was about 15 and they kept asking me, are, are you a genius? And if that were only the truth, but so you kind of get there, they kind of bring you in, they kind of take you on a tour. And then the next day you're observing highlights, basically. I mean, you're basically in, you know, figuring out, seeing what's going on what in what used to be called the screening room. And it's this, you know, I mean, there are 20 events going on and people are watching all these 20 events and you have to, you learn very quickly, you have to be tunnel visioned on your event, whatever that is, baseball, golf, tennis, you name it. That's what you got to be focused on. And no matter if your team's playing in a big game on something else, that's not your game. You can't worry about it. You find out later. So it, it was pretty interesting. The, the vibe to me was almost like graduate school, where it was all these people who were just out of or recently out of college. You're kind of all in the same boat where you don't know really anybody. And so it's kind of like everybody just kind of wants to be friendly towards each other and help each other out. You're all competing against each other because everybody wants to get promoted like anywhere else. But at the same point, most people were pretty friendly and you know, our schedules were 6 p.m. to 3 a.m., 4 a.m. So what are you doing at 4 a.m.? Because, you know, you're going out and you're going to go to a diner. And who are you going to diner with? The people you work with. So that's how you get to know people and stuff like that. You know, and I'm still friendly with multiple people that, you know, I knew from day one. That's awesome. Was it kind of obviously what percentage was women? Um, Back then. Uh, I'd probably say in terms of where I was, not necessarily amongst the higher ups, but the level I was at, I'd probably say 15 to 20%. There, there were more women than I was expecting. And one of the people, one of the women who I actually started with on day one now works for uh, NFL Network and helps run their YouTube channel. So like, there are a lot of women that I start worked with at the beginning that are now pretty high up elsewhere around the sport world, be it ESPN or elsewhere. That's awesome. Well, I know that you have a book about your time at ESPN called I Hammered Hank and was wondering, I mean, a lot of like big names. And I guess before I like dissect that was wondering how do you get, like, do you get grandfathered in to just not, you know, geek out about a celebrity? a sports icon? How does that work? Or you are, we were already kind of like that. So every, when you're interviewing what I call an A-lister, whether it's entertainment, sports, doesn't really matter. They know why you're there. You know why you're there. So there's this, I would say, professional courtesy about not geeking out and you're, you're there to do a job. So I got pretty good at not geeking out and the only two times I ever really did geek out, both of them were pretty much after the interview. One was my favorite NBA player ever and my favorite Dallas Maverick player ever, Rolando Blackman. And the other one was I grew up a big pro wrestling fan interviewing Hulk Hogan. You know, so both of those, you know, you kind of geek out over that. But even if you're geeking out, like with the Blackman, with Blackman, I actually geeked out during the interview and don't remember a lot of the interview. I had to actually listen to the transcript to remember it. But at the same point, you can't verbalize that you're geeking out because these guys are so used to that. They don't want to hear that. They just want to do the interview and go elsewhere. Mm -hmm. 
Well, any like fun facts or two cents on Hulk? What was he nice guy? So my camera guy for that interview had no idea who Hogan was. And my camera guy who worked at ESPN was not a big sports guy. And they used him primarily for that reason. Get the shot, get what you need. And he was a super, super nice guy. And so Hogan comes walking down the hallway and he looks at me and he's like, oh, my God, he's bleeping huge. I'm like, yeah. And so Hogan sits down and during the interview, so we shoot people from the chest up. You know, kind of like most interviews are done. Hogan at one point flexes his bicep during the interview and it takes up the camera lens. Oh. I mean, it was ridiculous <laughs> of how big it was. And, you know, but for me, the best part of that whole thing was afterwards, I got to talk to Jimmy Hart, who was Hogan's manager and wrestling people will know him as the mouth of the South. But Jimmy Hart was a musician and, and a singer with a band who had a top 10 hit in the sixties called the Gentries. And so he and I were talking about music and he was so nice and so friendly and so kind. I think I might've actually enjoyed that more than actually talking to Hogan, believe it or not. Interesting. Interesting. I love that. Well, obviously I see Hank Aaron, which um, I, like I said, I'm more of a study of television and my dad has helped guide me of like me observing him throughout my whole life of like who he, you know, I, basically what I'm trying to say is baseball for some, for some reason makes my father very emotional. It is like such a touchstone to his heart. And I know Hank Aaron was like part of that. And so obviously on my dad's behalf, what was Mr. Aaron like? Well, there is a long story to this. How much time do you have? Can you, can you like condense it? I will condense it as best I can. So I was at the Negro Leagues reunion in 2000. So imagine a 24-year-old white kid who is at the Negro Leagues reunion. And so the day before, I had had Buck O'Neill, who uh, was a very famous Negro Leaguer Hall of Famer, was inducted, unfortunately, after he passed. But he ran the Negro Leagues Museum at the time. And he kind of set up a bunch of interviews for me and said he would put in words for me with a bunch of the former players that were there. So the next day, we had left a message with Aaron, and Aaron hadn't done an interview with ESPN for a couple of years. He was not happy with ESPN. So we kind of left the message and said, whatever, we'll move on. So a colleague of mine was actually interviewing a football player, and I'm like, hey, I'm going to go downstairs and go see who we could find. And we were in this conference room, and if you've ever been in a hotel conference room, they have, they have like the 50-pound oak doors. <laughs> so you know what I'm talking about, right, where you got to put your whole body weight behind it yeah. to open the door? So I open the door and I hear fong. And I'm like, what the heck is that? And I look around the door and it's Hank Aaron. Oh, I man. hit Hank Aaron in the head with a door. And I'm like, oh, blank. But I'm thinking to myself, we just had Aaron come over to do an interview with ESPN. And now I lost the interview because I just hit Henry Aaron in the head with the door. I hammered Hank, which is where the book title comes from. And so I'm like, Mr. Aaron, I'm so sorry. I apologize. He comes in the room while my colleague is there. I go run to get an ice pack. And I come back and Aaron is talking to the guy we were interviewing. And as it turns out, that guy's idol was Hank Aaron to the point that he couldn't talk to him. Like mm -hmm. my colleague was actually speaking on his behalf. So Aaron says, after I give him an ice pack, yeah, it was great. 
So Aaron, after I give him an ice pack, he says, I'll be back at 1.30. He said, get whatever questions you want. I'm thinking to myself, he is never showing up. No way, no how after that. So mm-hmm. I'm on the phone at like 1.25 with one of my bosses. He's giving me a bunch of questions for Aaron and some others. I'm like, hey, got to go. I run back upstairs. I get in the room at about like 1.31. And there's Aaron in the chair waiting to be interviewed. I am not kidding. And he answered every single question I had. That is so sweet. He was amazing. He told a a Stan Musial story. He and Musial went to uh, Vietnam together on a goodwill mission and told a story that was just awesome that I had never heard. And I went back to the producer who was working on a Stan Musial show. And I'm like, I guess I have a story for your show. And he was the nicest, most gracious guy. And for especially after what I did, I have nothing but respect and appreciation. He, I mean, he was there for 30 minutes, 32 minutes, and everything I had. It was unbelievable. Yeah, that is so. Um, what was it like when you heard that he passed away? Uh, it sucked. I, I actually reached out to uh, Tommy Aaron's daughter, who was Hank's brother. Hank had a brother who played in the majors as well, and they were teammates for a number of years. Mm-hmm. So I actually reached out to his daughter and just left a message. Oh. about Hank passing away because at one point I was trying to write a book before I did a podcast and I was trying to get her or her uh brother to talk about their dad Tommy who passed away many many years ago but you know so that was kind of my reaction was this thing I, you know and he was you know still a community ambassador working for the Braves in that role at that point you know and I know a lot of people who dealt with Henry Aaron and I don't know anybody that has anything negative to say about it and you know, I have a friend who met him on the plane and actually said to him that he knew me and they both had a really good laugh about it. And, uh, you know, so for, for me, Aaron will always be as far as just as a, as a professional, as a gentleman, easily top five I've ever interviewed. That's awesome. I'm just like marinating because, you know, obviously, like, it's so interesting that like someone can be such a like generous and like, you know, genuine person what have you and then you know like the backstory of like some of the hell that he went through oh yeah and i would say that there are a lot of athletes and you know hell is all kind of relative to the each individual athlete but there are a lot of athletes who go through some pretty rough backgrounds and i would say 95 percent of the a-listers i've ever dealt with have been great and they haven't been an issue there's been no problem and they've all kind of been like what Aaron was like, whatever you need, I'll do whatever you need and not an issue. So regardless of how difficult their background might be, I think a lot of them realize whether it's in the moment or after they retired that what I was doing was pretty cool. And I need to make sure that I don't ruin that. Mm-hmm. You said awesome. Well, and I was, and I was trying to dissect this. So I know you connect, you worked with on with ESPN on ESPN U, ESPN Sports Century, and Sports Center. And so I was trying Correct. to like back. And obviously, I see the classics hat. Which one is no longer around? Obviously, not. So, I know Sports Center's around, but well, ESPN Classic is not around. It, it went under about. Uh, it didn't go under. They they actually are replaced. Going to end up replacing it with something else. But uh, that was. I would say two to three years ago, it was shortly after the pandemic started. So classic 
was around as ESPN Classic for, I think it was like 22 years. ESPN Classic is why you see the World Series of Poker. We put that on the air as kind of almost like a let's see what sticks, mm-hmm. along with like the World Series of Darts, the World Series of Blackjack, and that got huge ratings. That was an ESPN Classic thing. That was, And they were old World Series of Pokers. They weren't even current. But they just put them on, and that kind of brought that whole thing back. And then uh, Classic did a Sports Century. The original Sports Century aired on ESPN and ESPN2, which was the 50 greatest. But after that, ESPN Classic took it and expanded it and did a whole bunch of shows from around uh, 2000 to about 2008-ish or so. But but Sports Century hasn't been around since then. But there are a whole bunch of episodes that are on YouTube. Some of them are on the ESPN app that people can go and find. Um, ESPNU is still around. Uh, It used to be based in Charlotte, which is where I worked for ESPNU. They moved it to Bristol. Um, the SEC network is still in Charlotte, which was founded right before I left ESPNU. So they're still around. Sports Center will always be around in some form or another. Uh, seeing SVP host that show, SVP is one of the nicest people you will ever meet. And he's a really nice guy. So seeing him really get his own niche in addition to the radio show, getting that show, all the success that he gets, not only has he earned, but he is incredibly gracious about it as well. Well, I know that you talked about like personal encounters at ESPN, but was there like a world event or like a sports icon death while you were there that like you'll never forget, like just being oh, there? Oh, and Oh, yeah. For, for me, without question, 9-11, without question. So I was supposed to fly to Cleveland that day. And I was. Uh, huh? How old were you at the time? Uh, 9-11. So I was 25. So I was supposed to fly to Cleveland, and I was going to get in. I booked the flight. I was going to get in at 12.30, and I was going to get to see the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Not that I am a huge music guy, but I like Halls of Fame, no matter what Hall of Fame it is. So I was so pumped about that. And then all of a sudden, you know, one of the planes hit the trade, trade tower. So, you know, I, I basically go in and I'm like, hey, if you know anybody's in the second trade tower, you need to get them out of it because it's a terrorist attack. And I had actually written a paper in college in 1997 before the USS Cole incident, before a couple others, on bin Laden. So I was very familiar with him in terms of just somebody who studied him in college because I did a minor in international relations that focused on terrorism. Okay, wait, so, Paul. Wait, just pause. Yes. So you are taking a flight later that day and you're going into work early in the morning or? Correct. So I was supposed to fly, which obviously I never did. And so immediately so, because of your study, you see the first thing, you know, the first tower get hit and you know immediately that it's not an accident. Correct. Because the World Trade Center had been hit before on like a mistake where a plane had clipped it and they had made it illegal to fly fly that direction into the trade tower. So it was illegal to do that. So something was clearly up. And right, so you so walk into work and you tell walk into work. I just kind of say that. And people kind of look at me, whatever, because I was like two minutes away from work. Like I walked into work with shorts, t-shirt, and a hat, which is what I was wearing at home, which I would never do normally. Like ever. Uh, yeah. So and when 
the second plane hit and then the third plane hit, people started looking at me and I just kind of put my hands up like, sorry, like, you know, you know, I didn't mean to, you know, say what was going to happen. But again, you kind of know. And the thing was, is there had been articles written a couple of months before in like the New York Times and that were published in uh, the Detroit Free Press that it outlined what Osama's plan might have been. So this was kind of known, but if I had told you in August of 2001 that the trade towers were going to get hit and you lived in New York, you'd have been like, yeah, whatever. I mean, nobody's going to believe that, right? Even if they re- read it in a paper, it's just not something that anybody thought could actually happen. And then it does, and it's like, okay, now, what? you know, everybody's like, you know, now what are we going to do? And I called the two people I was interviewing the next day in Cleveland, and I said, would you be willing to do the interview? I will drive there. And so I rented a car and I drove there. And as a matter of fact, I went about 45 minutes north of Pennsylvania with the fourth crash site, which later was made into the movie. And there was a line on the highway. It must have, I don't know how long the line was, but I was like, I am never going to get through this. And officers were coming and checking cars. And I actually have an at the time I had an ABC ID in addition to an ESPN ID. And so I showed my ABC ID and I'm like, hey, I'm working for the media. I'm trying to get to Cleveland. I need to do a story. And I got a police escort past the whole traffic line to get me through it. That is not a joke. And it about saved me at least two and a two, two and a half hours. I got to Cleveland at like 9.30 last night. That night, I was the only person checking into the hotel. And I called my camera people and I'm like, hey, we're doing stuff the next day. They argued with me. I'm like, I said, we are doing this shoot. Everybody will need to get away from the TV. We are doing this. And I did my interviews the next day, which coincidentally were on the Tanya Nancy attack and on Michelle Kwan. Of the, I was working on a couple of figure skating shows. So Something that, you know, it, that also was very memorable. Right. In, in terms of, I mean, Tanya Nancy is going to be 30 years in January, and I will guarantee you there will be at least one retrospective on that. But yeah, that was my memory of 9-11 and all of that stuff. And, you know, that's the moment in terms of, you know, like importance to the country. I, I wouldn't necessarily call it pop culture, but everybody who was old enough to remember 9-11 knows exactly where they were on that day. Mm-hmm. That's where all my anxiety started, but that's another story. Um, so first can off, I, can I do a quick follow up on that? Yeah. So I the the following Monday, so the seventeenth was that was like the one of the first gatherings in New York outside of like politicians and stuff. And I went to a comedy show at the Comedy Cellar, and it was the first comedy show they had done in New York was there and there were like maybe 30 people there 35 and it was all these comedians wondering if they could tell a joke and make people laugh and they would tell a joke it would be kind of this uncomfortable but funny laughter that you can find in any comedy club for usually a controversial comic and it was like okay it's okay to laugh we can get back to normal Hmm. well two questions to circle back around when you see the first plane hit, because like again, of your knowledge and up to date with everything, did you 100% know that that was orchestrated by Bin Laden? I didn't know it was orchestrated by him, but I knew there was something going on. And I, I knew that my, my first thought was, 
how, how does Fort Lee is right there? How are their planes not in the air noticing this? That was my first thought. But in terms of bin Laden, no, I had an idea, but until the second one hit, because of what I read in that article from a couple of months before, that was the clue that I knew it was him, but I didn't know it at the first one. I understand. And second of all, why were you so adamant about doing the story the next day? I'm a big believer of no matter what is going on outside of your life that you can't control, like 9-11, you should try to stay to your life and do the stories because things that you can't control shouldn't bother you and shouldn't and, and should this is said and done, not affect you. And you should say, okay, I'm going to continue to do my work because this is what I am supposed to be doing. And that is, how, and that's how I've always felt. And so my view was, if I go do this, we can have a conversation about something that is not 9-11 based. We can get away from it. And it'll actually, we will actually all probably enjoy it, even though the topic of conversation maybe wasn't necessarily great either with Tanya and Nancy. It was at least not 9-11. It wasn't sensory overload. I can talk, I'm talking to people who were there for Tanya and Nancy, and we're just getting out of the moment. And sometimes I think we get so caught up in the moment and what's going on that we get this paralysis by analysis and it causes anxiety, it causes stress, and it causes all kinds of other things. And all that anxiety and stress bleeds over to all the other parts of one's life. And so I was totally focused on making sure to get away and do that. And I did two days of interviews and then drove back to Bristol. Uh, my boss actually made me stop and not drive back all in one day. So I ended up having to stop in the bustling metropolis of Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania, which uh, I will say was the only person eating in that Applebee's that night. <laughs> but uh, it was, you know, it, that was th that whole thing, that trip. And then the week before, because of 9-11, I made a trip the week before to Minneapolis. Or etched in my memory, I remember almost every single detail about both. Mm -hmm. Well, of course, it, you know, alters that I'm on a time clock and they've given me the nine minute countdown, but I, you'll have to come back and talk more. Well, first of all, give a shout out before we get cut off, give a, give a shout out to where people can find your podcast or any social media or your book or. Sure. So I host a podcast called I, I Play Too, which is about relatives of famous athletes, entertainers and musicians who also had careers. So if you're familiar with Michael Phelps, his sister Hillary, who was also a swimmer, uh, I, I did a podcast with or Steve Hawk, who was a surfer. His younger brother is Tony Hawk. Steve gave Tony his first skateboard. Stories like that. And it's available on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and just about every podcast app. Just got to search for I Played Too. And it's been really fun because a lot of these people are a little skeptical at the beginning, thinking I'm trying to get to the, their famous relative. And when they find out I'm not, they totally open up and they have some really, really great stories. I'm really enjoying doing that. It's awesome. Like I said, you'll have to come back so we can like go more into like podcast life. Sure. And real quick, I'm on Instagram under iPlay2 and I'm on X, formerly Twitter at handle Radler Cracker. Oh, I love that. I don't know. I just, I love saying the word so, Cracker. Cracker is a nickname I got in college from a friend of mine who, uh, if you remember South Park, when South Park first came out, we were in college and uh, I used to call him Chef 
because he looked like chef and he would call me cracker because chef used to greet the kids. Hey, how are my little crackers doing today? And then at the Negro Leagues reunion, I was greeted by one of the guys and he called me cracker as well. So it's just kind of stuck. That's oh, my God. R.I.P. Chef. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but since you brought up the um, Nancy, Tanya, I'm obsessed. Okay. That's another like thing I'm like obsessed with in my brain. Like one Halloween, I was like, I'll, I told my sister has blonde hair. I was like, I'll be Nancy and you be Tanya. But she was like, no. Anyways, so I'm obsessed. I'm obsessed with recreating, like holding my knee and being like, ah, why, why? But um, was wondering basically bottom line why did that happen so in your there are multiple theory there are multiple theories as to from various people i spoke to as to why that happened i i, I think tanya mentally wasn't in a great place at that point not that and she's had issues and stuff since then but she's actually to her credit kind of gotten her life on the right track. She's the mom of uh, somebody who's 10 or 11 right now. But I think that was part of it. And I think she was really desperate to make the Olympics. I mean, people forget she's a former U.S. figure skating champion at that point. And she had had some not great results. And I think she kind of knew that Nancy and maybe Michelle Kahn were going to go. And that might have played a role. You know, nobody really knows totally why. And the stories have kind of changed from when that happened to if you talk to people later. But, you know, I mean, the two people that would really know would be Shane Stant and Jeff Stone, formerly Galuli. You know, and those would be the people to ask because they're the ones that could kind of take you through the moment by moment more than probably anyone else other than Tanya. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I interviewed Nancy's then boyfriend for, for the show. And one of the things that he said was Nancy just didn't understand why it happened. And he kind of talked about a little how Nancy was so sheltered and didn't really understand that and understood and couldn't understand why the media wanted to talk to her. And she kind of was viewed as aloof and standoffish by a lot of the media at that point and afterwards. And it was just because she just wasn't ready for it and just didn't understand why people wanted to speak to her. Well, my, I don't know if it's my favorite because I have a lot of favorite random like B-rolls or whatever, but I enjoyed when she's at Disney. Do you know what I'm talking about? And they catch I know them. exactly what you're talking about. You know, so speaking of that, you know, she hosted Saturday Night Live as well, right? She almost didn't make the end of the show. There's only one person, one host who's ever not survived the show that they kicked off. She was nearly number two. Just because she was just so difficult. Yeah. And again, I just don't think she was used to the situation yeah. and understood the surroundings. Like many figure skaters, not all. There are some that are actually really understand the world around them but many figure skaters it's really just they're in figure skating and so they don't understand the world that goes on around them and it's not really any fault of theirs it's just they're there to to train and go compete and go win like that's what they're doing every day and i think that was a little bit of the situation with her and when you get people out of familiar surroundings they have a tough time adjusting and i think at that point for her it was just difficult I understand. Well, like I said, they're they're staying three minutes, but like I said, I'm, I'm going to go till we get cut. So I always want to say thank you so much for joining me. Sure. Anytime. Anytime you want, I'll be back.
Yeah. Okay. Well, so going back to Tanya, the only kind of thing that like I've kind of nailed in my opinion of why it happened, I think maybe Tanya had always talked, you know, bleep about, as you've corrected me, bleep about Nancy and the boyfriend has overheard and just, they took her up on her offer that she never offered them. That's my philosophy. Yeah, I've heard that too. I'm not sure I totally believe that. I I think it was more of a desperation move knowing I want to get to the Olympics. How do I get there? And not only that, like for figure skating as well, like you talk to anybody that was associated with figure skating after that, it was the best thing to ever happen in a weird way. It's the worst thing to happen in Nancy, but the best thing to happen in figure skating the ratings, the money, everything that that brought in because people wanted to watch. They wanted to go because they thought it might happen again. And mm-hmm. like for 10 years, like figures, the boom in figure skating. I mean, figure skaters, are, some figure skaters are making six figures for tour. Like figure skating had never seen that money before. And I would argue now haven't seen that money in about eight or 10 years. Well, before we get cut off, I know this might be a hard question, but do you believe there's like one greatest athlete of all times? I've got to I, I think that depends on who you ask. My belief on that is it's probably Jim Thorpe, just for the fact of how many sports he competed in. You know, he was an Olympian. He played in the NFL. He did a whole bunch of other things. He won gold medals in the Olympics that were stripped and have been reinstated. If you really go look and go read about Jim Thorpe, it would be very hard to say that there is a better athlete and a a, a more multiverse athlete than Thorpe, especially for that era. All right. Well, like I said, it's going to cut me off soon. So thank you so much. And thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Was it fun? It was. I appreciate it. Anytime you, anytime you need it, I'll be glad to be back. I enjoyed it. Yay. Thank you so much. Yep. See ya. This is Field Day with Katie Black. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.